I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Welcome to the Sunday Magazine podcast, featuring the stories we first brought you Sunday, October 29th on CBC Radio. Israel says it has entered the second stage of its war on Hamas with even more airstrikes and an expanded ground operation inside Gaza. We will bring you the latest in this ongoing war first up. After that, a CBC investigation has found that genealogical records and historical research contradict musician Buffy St. Marie's claim that she is a Cree woman from Saskatchewan. Three Indigenous public thinkers will join me to talk about these revelations and their deep implications. How often do you think about the Roman Empire? That is one for the TikTok crowd. But lucky for all of us, historian Mary Beard will tell us why we should look to the ancient world to better understand our modern one. And later on, filmmaker Errol Morris riffs on truth, fiction, and his new doc about spy novelist John Le Carre. That's all starting right now on the Sunday Magazine podcast. Internet and cell phone service is starting to return in the Gaza Strip more than a day after Israel instituted a near-total communications blackout. And the picture that's emerging this morning is dire. Israel is now in what it calls the second stage of its war against Hamas. It says this morning that it is expanding its ground offensive inside Gaza and intensifying its bombardment by air. And the United Nations says Thousands of Gazans have broken into aid agency warehouses, taking food and much-needed essential supplies. Israel is saying it will allow a dramatic increase in aid to enter the Gaza Strip in the coming days. Greg Karlstrom is a Middle East correspondent for The Economist. He's in Jerusalem, and I spoke with him earlier this morning. Ground incursion by Israel was widely expected since the Hamas attack on October 7th. So what has this quote-unquote, second stage of war looked like so far this weekend? I think what we're seeing so far is not the the sort of mass division-sized attack that everyone expected it was going to be a week ago or two weeks ago uh, when Israel was in the midst of calling up hundreds of thousands of reserve troops and preparing them on the border. What we've seen so far over the past 48 hours or so is smaller numbers of Israeli troops who've entered northern Gaza around two locations, one of them in Beit Hanun, which is in the far north of the Gaza Strip, and then 
one of them near a refugee camp called Brej, which is around midpoint of the 45 kilometer long territory. And so it looks like what they are attempting to do is to gradually encircle Gaza City, which is the main urban area in northern Gaza. But it's something that Israeli officials who I've spoken to over the past few days have described as a very long uh, ground operation, something that is going to take months, perhaps up to a year. So as best you can from your perch in Jerusalem, uh, take me inside Gaza. As I mentioned, it was been basically cut off from the world for the last day and some. Now that communication services are returning, what more are we learning about the situation in Gaza? It was cut off, and it's only in the past uh, few hours that I've been able to get in contact with some of the people who I was trying to reach yesterday and, and was not able to reach at all. But, you know, every story that comes out just paints a picture of absolute desperation. Uh, there have been these deliveries of aid over the past week that have come from Egypt, but woefully inadequate. Uh, there still is not much water. People are drinking water uh, out of agricultural wells, which is often salty and dirty and not fit for human consumption. Uh, bakeries, most of them have shut down because they don't have enough fuel to run their ovens and the handful of bakeries that are still open. Uh, there are very long queues to get very small allotments of bread. Uh, there's other food available, rice, lentils, things like that, that have come in as part of aid shipments. But those are not very useful if you don't have water or fuel with which to to cook those things. And, and many people do not. Um, I've heard of hospitals where thousands, if not tens of thousands of people are taking shelter, not just patients who are being treated, but thousands of people who think that there is nowhere safer to shelter in Gaza, who are just sleeping in, in the corridors and the car parks of hotels. Uh, just an absolutely desperate situation for two million people. I'm going to ask you more about the hospital situation in just a sec. But before we get there, um, this morning I was seeing video coming out of Gaza of hundreds of people um, taking stuff uh, out of aid agency warehouses, basic supplies, as you say, that they need. What are the concerns that civil order is starting to break down inside uh, Gaza? That is the concern, and that is exactly what UNRWA, the the UN agency that works with Palestinian refugees, uh, said in a statement that it put out earlier today about about civil order breaking down. You know, we're, we're getting to a point where millions of people are struggling to find food, water, medicine, other basic supplies, and, and there's uh, no governance at this point. You know, there's, there's in a sense, no one in charge because uh, the the government has just come to a halt in Gaza. So it's a, it's a very real concern. Israel's military spokesman this morning said um, Hamas has turned hospitals into command and control centers and hideouts. The Palestinian Red Crescent Society this morning says it has now received calls to evacuate Al-Quds Hospital, that's in Gaza City, and to do so immediately. As you said, people are sheltering in hospitals, as well as there are patients and health officials working in hospitals. How concerning is the call to get out of Al-Quds Hospital and move people south, as, as the Israeli military has said, get to the south? Right. I mean, there are so many people who either cannot or will not move to the south. The estimates that we have so far is that uh, since about two weeks ago, when the Israeli army first gave their order telling more than one million people to leave the northern part of Gaza, about two thirds of those people have left. That means there are still probably several hundred thousand civilians in Uh, northern Gaza in this area that the Israeli army is now encircling. Some of them are sick people who are in hospital who can't move. Some of them are elderly and can't move. Some of them don't want to move. Uh, I've also heard stories of people who did heed that evacuation order, who went south and 
once they got there, realized that they didn't have anywhere to stay, uh, rudimentary tents at best, other people sheltering in hospitals or schools down there. Uh, it was hard to find food. It was hard to find supplies. And also there were still Israeli airstrikes in the south, not as intense as they have been in the north, but there have been deadly airstrikes in the south as well. And so some people have actually gone back. They they followed the order. They went to the south. They decided that it wasn't safe to live there. Uh, and they've gone back to the north, figuring at least there they they have their homes and they probably have some supplies. Do you have a sense of if you're a patient, for example, who needs dialysis or cancer care, or if you're someone um, whose building was hit by a, an airstrike and you've got broken limbs and you care, if, if they're getting any care, what kind of care they might be getting at this point? I mean, it's very rudimentary care at this point. Um, these trucks that have come across the, the border from Egypt, uh, I think about 85 or so trucks over the past week, the UN says Gaza needs 100 trucks a day of supplies. So we're talking about a, a tiny fraction of what is needed. Some of those trucks have brought over medical supplies, but again, they're they're not keeping up with demand in hospitals that are now overwhelmed. So you talk to doctors and surgeons in Gaza, and they will tell you that they are operating without anesthetic because they, they don't have anesthetics to put patients to sleep. Uh, they are using vinegar from the corner store or washing up liquid from the corner store as disinfectant because they don't have proper disinfectants. Uh, bandages, surgical pins for, for bones, all sorts of very basic medical supplies have run out. And then for things like dialysis, for example, for machines that require electricity, uh, the World Health Organization says six hospitals in Gaza have already run out of fuel for their generators. Others are paring back their operations so that they can run their operating theaters and their intensive care units, but other parts of the hospital uh, have been allowed to go dark to conserve fuel. So the hospitals that are still functioning are are doing so in a very bare bones way, and, and some of them are not functioning at all at this point. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu did his first press conference since the October 7th attacks yesterday. Those attacks, of course, killed more than um, 1,400 Israelis, and there are more than 200 hostages, Israeli hostages now being held by Hamas inside the Gaza Strip And his press conference yesterday happened after he met with representatives of families of the Israeli hostages. What more did he have to say, given that the Israeli military is now in the second stage, about how Israel plans to keep those hostages alive and get them out? He didn't have anything very compelling to say on that subject, and it's become a, a huge source of anger in Israel. The families of these hostages have mounted a very effective public relations campaign over the past few weeks. They've held protests. They have been interviewed regularly in the Israeli media. Uh, and they came out uh, yesterday after a, a very, very heavy night of bombardment in Gaza on Friday night into Saturday morning. And they demanded a meeting with the prime minister. They said they were very concerned about the, the fate of their relatives who were being held captive in Gaza, who were under the same Israeli bombardment there as everyone else. They demanded a meeting with Netanyahu, but uh, I don't think they got any good answers from him. It's it's something that has become a, a real uh, political liability for the prime minister, something that many, many Israelis are angry about. So then give me a sense of kind of the mood um, in Israel, because you have family members of the hostages saying the paramount thing, the paramount thing for them is to bring their loved ones out. Of course, there is this military campaign going on in Gaza. What is sort of the general public? Are, are they behind the prime minister who has been highly criticized for not doing enough to prevent these attacks in the first place? 
I don't think anyone is behind the prime minister at this point. His his popularity, uh, which was not great to begin with, has plummeted over the past few weeks, um, not just because of this this campaign by the families of hostages and, and this justifiable anger that he refused to meet with them for weeks, but uh, also for the fact that he hasn't taken responsibility for anything. Uh, he has given a number of speeches. He gave a press conference last night. Uh, and when he's been asked about what happened on October 7th, this colossal intelligence and, and security failure that led to the massacre of 1400 Israelis, he hasn't taken responsibility for it. And to the point where there was a, a surreal moment last night where at about two o'clock in the morning, uh, Netanyahu on his Twitter account uh, put out a statement criticizing the heads of the security services and the army and blaming them for the intelligence failure. He hasn't taken responsibility, but he's very keen to put it on the, the army and the security services. Benny Gantz, who is now part of his war cabinet, who, who agreed to join a sort of unity government uh, more than a week ago, uh, Benny Gantz put out a statement condemning Netanyahu for his statement. Netanyahu had to apologize and, and took down his post from Twitter. This is what he's focused on at a time when he should be focused on on prosecuting a war. He's focused on his political survival and trying to shift the blame for what's happened over the past few weeks to the army, the intelligence chiefs, other people. Uh, this is what's consuming his time. And, and many, many Israelis are angry about that. So there's been reporting about... Um the Israelis holding off or holding back on a ground offensive, a, a fuller one, um, trying to negotiate uh, getting these hostages out. Yesterday, a spokesperson for Hamas's armed wing said an agreement was close, but Israel stalled that prospect. That is their perspective on that. Qatar is leading these negotiations, this small Gulf state. Um, are there any negotiations going on? And if so, what do we know about where those things are at? There are negotiations going on, and that is one reason, not the only reason, but one reason why this ground offensive has been delayed. Hamas has come out and said they are willing to make a deal in which they would trade the 220 or so hostages that they are holding uh, in exchange for all of the Palestinian prisoners uh, who are being held by Israel. Before October 7th, there were about 5,200 Palestinians in Israeli jails. Those numbers are probably higher now. Uh, but they want to exchange all of their hostages for all of Israel's prisoners. Uh, the families of the Israeli hostages came out with a statement in the past 24 hours saying that they also endorse a deal like that. If that's what it takes, then uh, they put their support behind it. But that's not something that I think either the Israeli government or much of the Israeli public uh, would support at this point. There's just not an appetite for that sort of uh, a wide ranging deal. So. There have been negotiations going on about possibly doing a smaller uh, hostage deal, something that might uh, exclude men, but but allow Hamas to release, say, women, children, the foreigners, the dozens of foreigners it's holding hostage. Uh, that's something that's been negotiated. Um, but none of this so far has has led to any tangible progress. And there are Israelis who are starting to think that Hamas just wants to drag out these negotiations because it would like to uh, postpone as much as possible the ground offensive. On Friday, the UN General Assembly approved a non-binding resolution calling for a humanitarian truce in Gaza, leading to a halt, at least temporarily, of hostilities between Israel and Hamas. Just so people know what the record is, 120 members supported that um, resolution. 14 did not, including the United States. There were 45 abstentions, including Canada. Yesterday, um, 
I read a tweet by UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, who uh, said, quote, I was encouraged by what seemed to be a growing consensus for the need of at least a humanitarian pause in the Middle East. Regrettably, instead, I was surprised by an unprecedented escalation of bombardments undermining humanitarian objectives. This situation must be reversed. Greg Carlstrom, what power does the world community have right now? Unfortunately, not much. Um, you know, I think there are a handful of countries that can exert some influence over Israel right now. And the United States is is at the top of that list. And there is no appetite in Washington to push Israel for a ceasefire. And I think so long as the Americans take that position, uh, there's not going to be much meaningful pressure on Israel. Uh, I think the Biden administration is coming around to this idea of humanitarian pauses. And and the concept there is that fighting would stop for perhaps a few hours each day to allow more aid to enter Gaza and also to allow uh, people who have other citizenships in Gaza to exit via Egypt uh, to to get out of Gaza. Uh, That is something that has pretty broad support in the European Union. Uh, I think the Biden administration, again, is, is coming around to the idea as well. Uh, But I think anything more than that, sort of talk about a a sustained ceasefire, I think we are a long way from uh, from that happening and and from anyone exerting meaningful pressure on Israel to do it. I have just a bit of time left with you, but and I ask you this every time I talk to you, which is every Sunday for the last uh, number of weeks, um, the Iran concerns are there. Iran has, you know, said many times now that... um, the situation in Gaza is bad and it can't continue. Uh, America did some strikes on um, Iranian assets in Syria a couple of days ago. The concerns about the, a wider conflict are where right now, Greg? I think those concerns have ebbed compared to where they were uh, in, in the first week or so uh, after the Hamas attack. There is still some tit-for-tat fire across the Lebanese border. Uh, As you say, there's also been uh, exchanges of fire between Iranian-backed militias in in Syria and Iraq and American troops stationed there. But uh, there is a sense in Israel, there's a sense in the West and also in in parts of the Arab world that Iran doesn't want this to escalate into a regional war. They certainly don't want to risk Hezbollah, their most powerful proxy uh, in Lebanon, uh, in order to try and defend Hamas. And so I think where we're at right now is that the Iranians, of course, want to show the reach of their proxies and and they want to show some support for Palestinians in Gaza. But I don't think that they want to escalate this into something much bigger. Greg, thank you as always. Appreciate your analysis on this. My pleasure. Greg Karlstrom is a Middle East correspondent for The Economist. I spoke with him from Jerusalem earlier this morning. And you can find all the latest developments in the Israel-Hamas war at cbcnews.ca as well as on the CBC News app. You're listening to the Sunday Magazine podcast. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Reactions to the investigation by the CBC's The Fifth Estate into Buffy St. Marie's claims of Indigenous ancestry have been powerful and they've been emotionally charged. Buffy has been a cultural icon for decades. Her music and advocacy focusing on injustices facing Indigenous communities and earning her Junos and Oscar and the title companion of the Order of Canada has made her a star. But now her claims to Indigenous ancestry are being contradicted and questioned by members of her own family and by documents obtained by the Fifth Estate, including her birth certificate, historical research, and genealogical documentation. To date, Buffy St. Marie has not addressed these issues directly with CBC. She did issue a public statement a day before the investigation was released. She calls the allegations 
deeply hurtful, and she continues to claim Indigenous identity. Right now, I'm joined by three Indigenous people who have thought deeply about the issues and consequences of these revelations and allegations. Tanya Talaga is an author and columnist for The Globe and Mail. Drew Hayden-Taylor is a playwright and author. He also co-directed and co-wrote a documentary for the CBC called The Pretendians. And Negan Sinclair is a columnist for the Winnipeg Free Press and a professor in the Department of Indigenous Studies at the University of Manitoba. Good morning, everyone. Thank you. I know... Um, you each have been digesting all of this for the past couple of days, and it, it hasn't been easy. Good morning to all of you. Good morning. Good morning. Tanya, let Good me morning. begin with you. Um, how had you been thinking about Buffy St. Marie before this investigation, and what, if anything, as it pertains to Buffy, has it changed for you? Well, you said it before, you know, um, Buffy has been an icon for so many of our people. I'm thinking of my my late grandmother who adored Buffy, you know. I'm thinking of my aunties, my friends who've worked for her, with her. It's, uh, I've always thought of her as an icon, as you know, that's, she's she's the one that opened the doors, blew them open for so many, so many of our women. And um, that's that's how I think of of Buffy. And when I, I think of, Buffy today, I think all those things, but I also see a giant question mark hovering. Hmm. Nikon, what about for you? How are you feeling about Buffy St. Marie after this investigation? Uh, when I was a kid, uh, Buffy was the person on the TV who talked about who I was and uh, said uh, that she was Cree and uh, was a person, you know, as a young Indigenous person in Manitoba, uh, I was very moved by that and that I, you know, you never really saw Indigenous peoples on TV. And so it was a a really profound moment for me. And so for the past uh, couple days, it's been very, um, you know, my first reaction of seeing the investigation was speechless. I mean, you all hear in the community different things that are said or whispers or you don't tend to believe, um, especially somebody so high profile and and having gone through so many different layers in our community. Uh, you know, Indigenous peoples wrote biographies uh, about her. Uh, Indigenous peoples appeared on stage with her. Uh, Indigenous peoples it claimed her as their family. So uh, it was, it's led to a lot of uh, feelings around well, what, what do I believe and how do I believe it? And, and I wrote a column about that kind of complicatedness. I think I now feel as a result of uh, having this huge figure in my life that now has, as Tanya says, a big question mark beside it. Hmm. Andrew, what about for you over the past <coughs> few days? What? How about Buffy? Yeah. Well, it's certainly been quite the ride in the last two, three, four days. I first heard rumors about this about three, four, five months ago when I, I got calls asking, is there any truth to this rumor? And I'm, my first reaction was no, because she was so iconic. Buffy has, for, for a good chunk of the Indigenous population, Buffy has been here forever, longer than most of them have been on Turtle Island. So I was tended to believe no, and then watching the documentary and seeing all the all the uh, information and the um, the the hunting for documents, etc. It, I'm sitting back, and as somebody put it yesterday or the day before on on a, on a Twitter, basically the indigenous head is currently spinning right now, and it it'll slow down for each individual person. I am as personally, I'm sort of disappointed. I'm 
I'm, I'm puzzled. Uh, one of the things that happens with a lot of pretendians is they tend to sort of disappear uh, into the background. I'm hoping Buffy will come out, face these, these charges, these allegations, and you know, put them to rest or, or acknowledge them, whatever, whatever the truth may be. Okay, let's talk about what Buffy has um, said in the past few days. Um, so as I mentioned, she hasn't responded to the investigation itself, but um, before the Fifth Estates uh, documentary came out, she did put out this statement. Uh, here's just some of what she said in a video posted to social media. I count myself lucky to have had two families to love, a growing up family who were wonderful, and my Pipot family who were also wonderful. But there are also many things I don't know, which I've always been honest about. I don't know where I'm from, who my birth parents are, or how I ended up a, a misfit in a typical white Christian New England town. But I realized decades ago that I would never have the answer to these questions. She goes on to say these questions hurt her, but also hurt others. And quote, to those who question my truth, I say, I know who I am. Negan, when you saw Buffy St. Marie as a response, response before the investigation was released. What did that say to you? Uh, it said to me that I should watch the documentary or it said to me that I should, uh, you know, at the same time that that, that statement came out, actually just a few uh, hours before that, uh, there was the family uh, that that claims her in the Payapot family out in Saskatchewan and issued a statement as well saying that we claim her, we love her, we call her auntie. And so uh, as a person who for years has said that uh, to be Indigenous is not about who you claim, but who claims you, um, I don't get to just cherry pick that statement. I, I take it very seriously. And so... Uh, what that means is I had to look into what is the traditional adoption that took place, what is the relationship between the Piapot family and Buffy, and then uh, what it what is exposed as a result of the documentary. One thing that Buffy doesn't say is uh, is that there are members of her family that that do claim her in Massachusetts and say that she was born there. And there's certainly a lot of evidence in the documentary that suggests that. And so that means that there's some uh, gaps in the story, some things we're not hearing about. And whether the family's estranged or not in Massachusetts, uh, it certainly tells you that there is a, um, uh, there's a, a lot of things that are not being said. And I think that's what le leads things to Drew, Drew, for example, saying that Buffy's got to address these issues that the uh, documentary, we can criticize the documentary all day, but if Buffy doesn't talk about it, then then what we're left to is to come with up with our own conclusions, and that's what's taking place. You mentioned the Piapot First Nation that put out the statement again before um, the release of the documentary. And as you mentioned, Negan, uh, Buffy is our family. We chose her and she chose us. We claim her as a member of our family. And all of our family members are from the Piapot uh, First Nation. Uh, and they go on to say, to us, that holds far more weight than any paper documentation or colonial record keeping ever could. Um, after the documentary, the acting chief of the Piapot First Nation uh, told CBC that his community will not turn its back on Buffy St. Marie going on to say that he can relate to a lot of people feeling betrayed, in a sense lied to by her claiming Indigenous ancestry when she may not, uh, in fact, be Indigenous, but also says when it comes to Buffy specifically, we can't pick and choose which part of our culture we decide to adhere to. We do have one of our families in our community that did adopt her, regardless of her ancestry. That adoption in our culture to us is legitimate. Tanya, can you explain just more what it means to be claimed as a member of the Piapot family or adopted into a First Nation? What does that really mean? 
Well, I can't say specifically for the Piapot First Nation because I'm not a, a member of the First Nation, but as I understand it, I mean, my nation is Fort William First Nation and we have adopted members as well, right? Um, you might not be biologically a First Nations person, but you can be adopted as a, a member, a full member of the nation. And that's what's happened to her right? It's happened to her in her 20s. Her Piapot family has come out and said, you know what? We chose Buffy and Buffy chose us. I believe that's what they said in the statement. And they also said that they are a sovereign nation. And as such, you know, Canada doesn't have a right or anyone else really, other than if you're a Piapot member to say who is part of your nation and who isn't part of your nation. So I think that you have to look at it like that, you know, regardless of where she was born um, and what she knew about her birth in her 20s, she was adopted customarily uh, by Piapot members. And so to me, she's a, a member of Piapot through customary adoption. There is a lot of debate about this, of course, and, and, and one of the debates is that by that claiming or that adoption by the First Nation of Bafi, that that makes her part of the Indigenous community. There are others who point out, well, that doesn't make her Indigenous. Drew, what do you say to that debate? Well, uh, I am more than uh, delighted, more than willing to respect the fact that she's a member of the Piapot family. Um, in the native community, as with most communities, uh, family is family is family. There's a few things more sacred, more important than family. And the fact that she has been, uh, adopted by this family, taken in, defended by this family, I think says a lot is very, very important. But I think outside that family, outside that specific uh, community, I don't know if it has uh, the, the, the effect, the, uh, the relevance to the larger Indigenous community in general. I remember when uh, uh, Joseph, the whole thing happened with Joseph Boyden, um, I believe, and I could be wrong, there were two or three Cree families that adopted him at the time. Um, saying that we adopted him, he's native, end of topic, but it didn't seem to be the end of the topic. Uh, he's still he um, he's still sort of on the back burner in terms of uh, of uh, Canadian culture, Indigenous culture, and the literary world. So I don't know how much nationwide power an adoption into one family has. One of the other big debates, there are many, is about documentation. So the Fifth Estate Report, for our listeners who haven't um, read about it or, or seen it, found a birth certificate. It indicates Buffy St. Marie was born in 1941 in Stoneham, Massachusetts to white parents. There's other documents that the Fifth Estate provides um, that, that suggest she's white as well. The town clerk there says that birth is undoubtedly authentic, but people are saying that some that this kind of documentation Inigan is questionable when it comes to Indigenous people. What are the questions that a birth certificate or a marriage certificate, which Buffy had signed saying she was right, what, what questions do documentation raise in this situation and other situations? Yeah, I just want to echo what Drew said just a minute ago. Uh, a family that adopts 
uh, a person uh, is good and fine and we recognize that they, that for that community that person may be a part of that community but that doesn't mean the rest of us then just come along with that uh, unquestionably and that that is the most indigenous conclusion which is that uh, everyone has a right to ask questions especially for someone with such a big footprint now getting to the birth certificate issue uh, I wrote a column talking about how complicated uh, indigenous identity is and uh, particularly when it comes to this issue around adoption uh, it was a regular practice particularly before you know was the 70s but during the time period that we're really talking about going up to the 1940s 50s 60s and then the infamous uh, adoption mass adoption of first nations children particularly into families in the united states and britain uh, that when children were taken uh, their families that were adopting them uh, would be put onto the birth certificate. And this wasn't uh, something like a mass wide practice that everybody did. But uh, upon writing my column uh, where I said, you know, it's hard to refute these documentations that governments, and we have to remember that in the documentary, the Saskatchewan government said that they had no uh, no tracing of any particular burn, you know, because oftentimes Buffy would say that that her records were lost or burnt or or removed on Piapot because she claimed to be born there. Um, and Saskatchewan's uh, the government of Saskatchewan said that that never we have no record of that. And so. Uh, if there is a kind of problem with her birth certificate and that when she was uh, born in Massachusetts or born in Saskatchewan, either one, um, that what her parents' names on those birth certificates, there is an opportunity, there's a chance that this may be incorrect on her birth certificate. However, the it's very difficult in this case to look at the documents and the evidence that's been presented. And uh, it, it would have to be a lot of factors brought together for this birth certificate in Massachusetts to be incorrect. And that's why you need uh, Buffy St. Marie to come out and address this. Huh. So, Tanya, there are also people who say, leave her alone. She's an elderly person. She's done a lot of good work, Indigenous or not, for um, raising and championing Indigenous issues over many, many decades. Does that make a difference to you? You know... Does it make a difference to me? That's a hard one, you know. Um, I, I think I feel like everyone else is feeling right now. It's really hard to process, right? Like it's really hard to, to figure this all out and to understand that one of our our sort of biggest stars is is totally maybe not who she says she is, right? It's it's it is hard, and I I don't like how divisive this has become. You know, people are unfollowing people. People are saying mean things about each other, and it's just uh, on on Facebook and social media, and it's just it's so heartbreaking to see that uh, and how divisive this this is. Um, when it just shows you the harm that comes to our communities when stories like this appear and when there are a lot of questions that are around these these stories too, right? Like, you know, you mentioned the birth certificate um, and there's also the census records, but census records are tricky. Sometimes those are true, sometimes they're not true. When it comes to records with our people, you it's true, like records, especially records taken 50, 60, 70, 100 years ago, they are open to interpretation often because there's spellings wrong, there's birth dates wrong, there's so many things that are taken down wrong, there's language issues. Um, 
it's a lot. So, you know, getting back to your point, the divisiveness just really gets me and the, the harm that this has done to our communities. That's number one with me. I mean, it's just everyone's just bleeding right now. Drew Hayden-Taylor, I, I would like to ask you about the divisiveness. You explored the issue of false identity claims in a documentary you made um, called The Pretendians. Um, a pretendian is a term that is used to describe a non-Indigenous person who falsely claims Indigenous ancestry. When you made this documentary, you got flack from all sides. Um, some accused you of not going far enough. Others didn't like that you were doing it all. Why are people, especially within the Indigenous community, so divided over this? Well, there's nothing more personal to a person and a people than their identity. So when somebody comes in and for all intents and purposes <coughs> claims or steals that identity, it, it does tend to uh, hit a soft spot, right? So when the documentary came out, I had people basically uh, after me for because I didn't wasn't vicious enough. I didn't out enough uh, Indians, and I'm not. I'm not sure I outed anybody in the documentary. It was an exploration of the issue specifically. And there were other people who, who, who basically said, well, what was the term? I'm a, a, a scum-sucking, white-passing, pretendian hunter who made me the gatekeeper. So yes, uh, this is an issue that comes close to almost everybody who takes who they are, where they come from, and what they believe in. And very much, very important. And... Uh, you can't you can't blame them because as somebody once said about this the whole pretending issue they're trying to erase us by replacing us Brody Fenlon, the editor-in-chief of CBC News, posts an explanation of the journalistic decision-making that goes into investigating claims of Indigenous identity. And Nikon, he said there are a number of considerations, such as whether a person being investigated is of significant influence, shaped public perceptions of what it means to be Indigenous, and whether they have benefited from their claims. He also added that to ignore any tips on these sort of stories would be a form of journalistic negligence. This all raises um, the issue of who should be telling these stories, in addition to whether these stories um, should be told? As a journalist, who should be telling these stories? Uh, I think the bigger question is, is why does the media and big high-profile media, that's well-funded, uh, get to cherry-pick who which stories they hear to and, and which stories they investigate? That's really the concern amongst the Indigenous community, is, is we often talk about individuals who have very problematic claims to our community and haven't done the heavy lifting, haven't done the hard work uh, necessary to be able to be claimed and so have big footprints. And uh, those individuals oftentimes aren't investigated till years down the line and often as a result have uh, uh, displaced people, uh, have made big, huge uh, opinions that have influenced, are often on job committees at universities and on award selection committees and so on. And so that's the real challenge is I often think that um, what's left out of the CBC statement, which is that um, you know, kind of a sense of accountability. I mean, it's I think one thing that the community is generally very angry about is that uh, when the CBC does choose to investigate individuals and important things that are being come to light as a right of the result of this investigation. I mean, many people are very thankful that this has come to light, but at the same time, I mean, people have been talking about this for quite a long period of time. People have brought this to many of us in the community. And uh, perhaps while many of us don't have the resources to be able to do the kind of search in Massachusetts and wide-scaled searches over decades 
and that uh, like why coming why do it now and like for instance if if this is true if Buffy Saint Marie has uh, falsified elements of her identity and so on if true uh, you're right uh, why would she why would we want to do this now she's elderly she's retired she's not even doing concerts anymore. Um, I mean, this might have been something important to do when she was competing against people in, for music awards or making huge uh, pleas to governments to get funding for her curriculum development uh, for Indigenous education. I mean, she's done a really great job doing a lot of really important community work, but there are also many of us who are struggling right alongside her trying to do that work as well mm. and may have been displaced. And so it's, I think... The challenge is in that story, in that statement by CBC is, I mean, when do, when is it enough? And when is it that, uh, who do who do they listen to? That's really the big question here. Tanya, as a journalist, I'd like you to weigh in on that. Mm-hmm. I've been thinking a lot about that too, right? I mean, who gets to tell the story? And um, why did, uh, why did the story happen at the Fifth Estate at this point in time? And, you know, why is the family just coming forward? Um, from Massachusetts right now. I mean, what what prompted all of this? Um, journalistically speaking, though, was harm caused to others? Is there a fraud? You have to look at those aspects of it too, right? Um, and so journalistically speaking, if someone calls you with the story, you're going to write the story, right? You're going you're gonna to pursue it. Um, you're going to make sure you also have, I believe, Indigenous journalists. It would be good to have Indigenous journalists on this story, too. Yeah, and just to point out, Michael Dick, who is one of the managers here and is the head of our Indigenous unit, was an editorial consultant on it. But I just want to make that point, but go on. Mm -hmm. Well, that's important. And what does an editorial consultant mean? Did he check over everything? Um, It would uh, also be great to have a a First Nations journalist as someone being on the ground doing the research as well, looking and talking about which angles to to look at. But, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, like some people are talking about um, the Juno that she won. Should she have won the Juno for Indigenous Musician of the Year? Mm. I think it was. Um, These are questions that you have to you have to ask, right? I mean, yeah, there are those, sorry, I just, I wanted to ask, um, there are those that would say there are deep implications, they're broad, they go way past Buffy St. Marie. And one of the things that was raised in the documentary and elsewhere is that the verification um, needs to be better. Negan, what, what could or should we be doing collectively to better verify people who, who are claiming Indigenous um, identity who are not? As, as Drew pointed out, there have been other cases as well, and pe- some people say this is just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, well, at the University of Manitoba, where I work, uh, we've had this issue for a long period of time. I mean, it's no no stranger that the biggest uh, exposures of individuals who have fraudulently claimed Indigenous identity work at universities, and and they they exist everywhere in society. Uh, in the documentary, they talked about perhaps even as high as twenty five percent of people who are claiming uh, Indigeneity in really high profile positions. Uh, Kim Talbert talked a little bit about that in the documentary. Um, 
at the University of Manitoba, what we require is we require community involvement, that communities have to claim individuals and, and illustrate what the relationship to that community involves. And that means what we've chosen as a university, and this has taken decades because for decades, the university has just refused to deal with the issue and put their head in the sand around it. And now, because of the what they've seen at the University of Saskatchewan, the huge scandals that have taken place involving professors there and so on, is they've stepped they've stepped aside and let communities take the lead in recognizing who are the individuals who apply for jobs, hmm. who um, publish articles, who get major notoriety from the university and get big, big high profile positions, and so that the university is taking leads from communities. Now, that's a policy that has been years in development, been very controversial, and has yet to be fully passed. But um, it's certainly evidence that uh, that's what needs to take place at the CBC. It has to be alongside communities. Like it's very. It's very notable that within the documentary, you aren't hearing some of the voices that then had to turn to social media, like particularly from the family. I mean, it's good and fine to hear from a chief and everything like that. But I mean, we wouldn't turn around and talk to a mayor uh, from a town or a premier of a province to ask about a specific individual. Uh, we need to talk to the family and mm -hmm. we need to hear from that family in that documentary. And unfortunately, that's not what we did. And I think Tanya identified very clearly that if an Indigenous reporter was on the lead of that, they probably would have asked that question and they probably would have had because we are accountable to our community. Mm. We are accountable to Indigenous peoples. And when we work in the media, like when I publish a story, I don't just hear about it from readers. I hear about it from my sisters. Mm. <laughs> and so because they've been talked to by somebody and that that's the key is I think we need to step aside uh, in the media world and we need to step aside communities and listen to them and see what how they are vetting, how they are choosing, how they are adopting. And that's what reconciliation starts to look like. I just have a, a little bit of time left. Drew Hayden Taylor, we're at a moment in Canada where we've been having difficult discussions about reconciliation and what that should look like. How does this story fit into the involving national conversation about Indigenous issues? Well, I, what I find sort of interesting that is, again, all the attention focused on the Buffy issue. And yet in the background, there's so many more pertinent um, uh, important issues out there in the First Nations community. The, um, the, the, the exploration of the landfill, the murdering, murdered and missing Indigenous women, um, pipelines, etc. There's so many things that are touching everyday mm. Indigenous people, and yet this seems to be at the top of the list of what everybody's talking about. In the big scheme of things, it's not that important. It's not, I'm going to wake up tomorrow and my life is, is going to be unchanged, as with most people, but as I said earlier, you know, identity is so important to each of us that you hear something like this, it, 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 it pokes you in the side and makes you pay attention. What uh, the long-term effect of this is, I don't know. As Negan said, pe uh, organizations, people are going to have to sit down and figure out what is the best way to assess all that. It's not just a matter of ticking off a box on an application form anymore. That, that box has gotten a lot bigger and harder to tick off. Tanya, I really have about 20 seconds left, but just want to give you a quick last word on, on where this story fits in. You know what Drew said, there's a $23 billion settlement that happened after a decade-long fight for our children. Mm -hmm. Cindy Blackstock is a hero. We should be celebrating our heroes and the work that needs to be done. We have so much work to be done. And Buffy St. Marie, that's entertainment. 
We'll leave it there. I so appreciate all three of you. As I said, I know this is a difficult conversation. It's been a difficult few days, and I thank you both for helping us all understand it better. Miigwech. Thanks. Thank you. Miigwech. Tanya Talaga is an author and columnist for The Globe and Mail. Drew Hayden Taylor is a playwright, author, and humorist. And Negan Sinclair is a columnist for the Winnipeg Free Press and a professor in the Department of Indigenous Studies at the University of Manitoba. Nala Ayed, host of Ideas. In this age of clickbait and online shouting, Ideas is a meeting ground for people who want to deepen their understanding of the world. Join me as we crack open a concept to see how it plays out over place and time and how it matters today. From the rise of authoritarianism to the history of cult movies, no idea is off limits. Ideas is on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts. It may be literally ancient history, but there's just something about the Roman Empire that never seems to get old. From pop culture to politics, the Romans never seem far away. In fact, ancient Rome has even been trending on TikTok lately. We'll get to that in a sec. And my next guest can take some credit for another generation's fascination with this history. Mary Beard is one of the world's best-known living classicists. Between her BBC documentaries and best-selling books, Mary's got a gift for bringing the reality of everyday Romans to life. In her latest book, she puts the focus on the emperors, all of them. It's called Emperor of Rome, ruling the ancient Roman world. Mary Beard, good morning. And good morning to you. Or maybe I should say Dame Commander of the Order of the British Empire, Mary Beard. I, I think we won't use the word dame. Okay. <laughs> so, sounds like a pantomime, doesn't it? And then you've got the British Empire as well. So uh, um, let's stick to Mary. <laughs> okay, we'll stick with Mary. I, I will just say I think you're the first dame we've had on the show, but uh, Mary's good for me too. Um, I have to start by asking about this TikTok thing Mm. for people who are like, what are you talking about? And why in God's name are you going to ask Mary Beard about TikTok? Here we go. There is this trend that's been happening over the last number of weeks. It began with one couple, but is really extended where women ask their male partners or family or friends how often they think about the Roman Empire. I I gather you have seen this thing. (laughs) Yes, I have. (laughs) What do you you make of this? Because the surprising thing is like how often a lot of guys think about the Roman Empire. I did this with my husband. He was like, yeah, like at least like once every couple days, which I was like, wait, what? So... (laughs) Yeah. When you heard so, about this, what do you think? Well, I, to start with, I thought, my goodness me, my publishers have been absolutely brilliant. They've set this great publicity campaign up and, um, and it's all been down to them. Um, when I asked them whether they got anything to do with this TikTok trend, they denied it. So I had to take it for real. And I think it's extremely interesting. My job is, as it were, getting people interested in the Romans. And so... I will start with anything. And if I find a guy who says he thinks about the Roman Empire seven times a day, as some of them do, uh, I am quite happy to say, oh, that's fine. That's a good place to build. And I will show you it's more interesting even than you imagine. So so, so I'm quite quite pleased with it. But I'm still puzzled about why. Mm. I, I think the only answer I've got, and it's a very bland one, is that, the Roman Empire is a kind of safe space 
for fantasizing about being macho, you know, because it's such a long time ago. And I'm sure these guys are thinking not about the slaves or the women or the ordinary people. They're thinking about the emperors and the generals. And it gives a little kind of, well, safe space for pretending to enjoy or really enjoying a, a certain sort of machismo that they think mm. goes with the Romans. Now, I, I want to say, look, it's more complicated than that, but I think that's it. I mean, you you know, it would be absolutely impossible to say that you thought about, you know, European dictators or the Third Reich three times a day. That would be very suspicious, to say the least. But the Romans are kind of so long ago. Uh, and everybody, if they want, if they're male, can imagine that they put on their little military skirts or their togas and they become men in, mm. a, in a very old-fashioned way. And I, I think that that has got something to do with it. Yeah, and maybe in a very limited way, right? Because as you uh, w- well know, it, it goes much deeper than skirts and military skirts and so on. <laughs> it really does. but I, I, uh, And I think that it, it is part of the way we engage with the past in a very partial way. You know, that, that, you know, if you ask students, who would you imagine being in the Roman world? Men or women, it's they always imagine themselves at the very top of Roman society. You know, it gives us it's kind of upward social mobility in the mind. And you so look, people like us, you know, why didn't you imagine yourself as the slave girl cleaning the baths, you know, or the carpenter trying to make his living in the Roman world? But that's not what fantasy does. Fantasy mm-hmm. lets you be uh, top of the tree and the big wigs, partly, I think, to cut out the nasty bits. And one of the things we have to do in history is remember to put the nasty bits back in, um, as well as the more complicated bits and the bits about other people. So, so I think that, that blokes thinking about being Roman is is a good start for thinking more interestingly about being Roman. Thinking about ancient Rome is one thing. Learning about it is another. And I think there is a portion of people out there, Mary Beard, that find Roman history intimidating, maybe because there is so much history, so many names. What do you Uh, say when someone says, Mary, I just can't, so many names, so many names? Yes, no. I know that particularly when it comes to the Roman Empire and the rule of the, the of the emperors, you know, we know some of their names. We know Claudius because of Robert Graves's I, Claudius, and most people have heard of Nero fiddling while Rome burns. But they're very, very put off because, not unreasonably, they imagine that in order to understand this period of, of history, in order to understand the Romans, you've got to know the names of all these damn rulers, you've got to know when they ruled, what order it was, and so forth. And one of the things I was wanting to do in my book is to say, you don't, actually. And uh, Most Romans didn't know uh, the order in which their emperors had come. And if you say, well, I haven't heard of the emperor Gator, then I can promise you that most Romans wouldn't have heard of him either. Don't worry about that kind of thing. But what we can explore, uh, and we don't need to know all those micro details, is we can explore what emperors, as a kind of group, as a class, as a job description, what they were like, you know, what they ate, where they went, who they slept with, where they lived. And it doesn't matter all that much whether they were, you know, Claudius or Antoninus Pius. So broad strokes, Mary Beard, give me a sense of emperorship. I think it's an extremely elusive 
one, because it comes in many, many different forms. And one of the things that Romans thought about when they thought about emperors, was they thought about people who were larger than life. Um, so they had, you know, more sex and better sex and more food and more elaborate food. And they lived in bigger houses than anybody else. It's a bit in the line of celebrity gossip now, I think, that, you know, what, what to, or, the, or royal gossip, you know, the queen's corgis ate out of silver dishes. Right? So there's a, there's a fantasy about power and riches, but Equally, and I think this is more surprising to people, there is part truth and part fantasy in the idea that the Roman emperor, part of his brand was that he should be accessible to everybody. Mm. It's a wonderful story told about the emperor Hadrian, but also about other emperors. He's going uh, through the countryside and an old peasant lady comes up to him and says, excuse me, emperor, I've got a question for you. And... He turns around and says, terribly sorry, haven't got the time. <laughs> and she says, if you haven't got the time for me, you haven't got the time to be emperor. <laughs> we tend to forget this, this side of the Roman emperor. But the Roman emperor is a pen pusher. He's an administrator. He's a problem solver. And he probably spends an awful lot more time um, doing his correspondence and making legal judgments than he ever spends having rather elaborate sex in swimming pools. <laughs> there are different ways of imagining him. But before we get too carried away about all the lurid stuff, and I do talk about the lurid stuff in the book, we have to put back into that the emperor as an admin guy. And some of them... Oh, so boring, Mary. So so administrative. It is. I I think it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, and you can can see the modern ruler in this sometimes because both Julius Caesar and Marcus Aurelius, a later emperor, um, they get terribly bad press because they go to the races, the big form of popular entertainment in Rome, and they take their letters to answer while they're at the races. And the crowd gets really angry because it looks as if they're not taking popular entertainment seriously. And you suddenly see that this is exactly like if, say, um, Prince William went to a football match and was caught texting while the goal was being scored. You know, that people would be saying, he doesn't really take football seriously. He doesn't take us seriously. Wow. So it is the source of controversy in Rome, as, as well as being, I think, slightly reassuring. You know, these guys um, sat down with their pens and they got up early and they answered letters. Yeah. I think people would think expect us to talk about Nero, but I'm going to leave Nero aside because I think for me, one of the most fascinating um, emperors that you write about in this book, someone I'd never heard of, Fairly obscure. Elagopolis. Do yes. I say that right? Yeah, pretty well. Ele- I say Elagopolis, but you're probably more correct. Elagopolis. No, you're probably yeah. more correct. Colorful character. And I think it's worth just talking about him for a minute, uh, Mary yeah. Beard. Just give us a thumbnail sketch yeah. of him. Well, he's, he's a teenage emperor who originates in Syria. Many Roman emperors um, originate outside Rome. And he rules for four years in the early third century CE uh, before he's assassinated. And I use him as a kind of, as the poster boy in a way at the start of the book, because, you know, if you think that Nero is extreme, 
Uh, Nero is a pussycat compared with what we're told about Elagabalus. And so what I do is I dive straight in to some of the most unbelievable, but also highly coloured stories about what an emperor could do. I mean, uh, Elagabalus has got it, got everything. I mean, he invites his friends to dinner one day and he's very generous and he showers them at the end of the evening with rose petals, but so many rose petals that they smother and die. Right. Oh, um, sorry, I don't even mean to snort. I, was, I know I've read this. So, I mean, so many rose petals that you kill your guests. Yes, that's yeah. right. And he has all. I mean, that's you know, in some ways the worst because it really is first degree murder. But um, on other occasions, he has other little kind of humiliating tactics for dinner. Um, he, for example, serves the lower ranking guests sometimes with fake food, not real food. So that if you're sort of at the bottom of the table, you get a wax model of a pear while people at the top are eating the fruit nicely. And he also, he he probably invents the whoopee cushion um, because he, again, on one occasion, he sits uh, some of his guests on inflatable cushions. And during the evening, he has the air let out of the cushions so that in the end they are lying on the floor. All all these stories are just wonderful fantasies about uh, imperial excess, honestly. To start with, I I kind of thought, look, if you're writing a serious history, you just have to get rid of those. Some of them may be exaggerations, but you know, none of them are literally true, I very much doubt. Yeah. Um, they're told to blacken the name of Elagabalus. And I suppose my first uh, attempts at writing uh, writing the book was to, to try to keep those stories at bay. I then saw two things. You know, one is it made a very boring history. Uh, secondly, though, I think I was missing the point of these anecdotes. And I think the kind of stories that we tell about people in power, even if they're not true, are really important. They're important about ourselves, but they're also important about how people feel about the nature of autocracy. And I think that that story about Elagabalus and the rose petals is a great case in point, actually, because uh, I think that what it's saying, apart from it being a slightly chilling, if almost humorous joke, what it's saying is you have to be very careful of emperors because when the emperor is being apparently his most generous, he can still kill you then. So the generosity of the emperor is actually a killing generosity. Hmm. Now, if you put it in those terms, those anecdotes then seem to be quite important in thinking about fear, power, corruption, and the effect of living, what it's like to live under a, an autocratic monarchy. And Mary, you write about this, of, of course, because the emperors, there was this one-man rule and autocracy. It went on for centuries. Mm. Was there talk of people rising up? Like, let's overthrow the emperor. There's quite a lot of talk about people wanting to get rid of the emperor who's on the throne at the moment. (laughs) Um, There is almost no talk of wanting to get rid of the system of one-man rule. 
Hmm. So there are, you know, a lot of people think I'd rather have a different person on the throne than this one. There's very, very little trace of to the first few decades of autocracy of anyone saying, I don't think the autocratic system is right. Why do you and think I, that is? That's a big question. But I, I think that what you can see is that, and I think it's a lesson here for us, honestly, you can see that there's a huge tendency for people to go along with it and to make the best of it. And although I think that we, we're looking all the time for the dissidents, for the people who will speak up against this system. And although we like to imagine, I think it's a vain imagining, that if we'd been there, we would have objected. Actually, if you look through all this, people go along with it. They make a deal with dictatorship. And I, I think that, you know, to be honest, that's what keeps autocratic regimes in power even now, right? It's Okay, it's partly violence, it's partly the bloodstained corridors of power. But what sustains and underpins this kind of one-man rule, wherever we are, is not only violence, it's that people actually make the best of it, go along with it, and don't object. You know, they don't like individual emperors, and when an emperor dies or is got rid of, they're very happy then to put their head above the parapet and say, oh, I knew he was a rotten thing all along. But actually, for most of the time, they just make do. And I think in some ways, the Roman Empire is a bit of a warning about making do, because that's what that's what keeps it going. If you're just joining us here on The Sunday Magazine, I'm Pia Chattopadhyay, and I'm speaking with the celebrated historian and classicist Mary Beard. Her latest book is called Emperor of Rome. When we speak of the Roman Empire, we get a, a, a certain view of women in that time, or no view of all. How, how do the women feature in these stories of the emperors, or, emperors you're telling? Um, well, sometimes quite prominently, and I think it's it's true that for a few women in the imperial court, the emperor's wives or the emperor's mistresses, they probably did have more practical power than any women in Rome had ever had before, for the simple reason that they were close to the emperor. They could uh, whisper in his ear. That's why some slaves appeared to have power, appeared, I think we should underline, um, in the Roman Empire, because they were close to the emperor. They they shaved him in the morning or they put his shoes on and they could bend his ear. And that is unofficial vaccines power of a sort. But both slaves and women were not, I think, really powerful. Though I think there is one very strong strand, both in modern history writing of the Roman Empire, but also in some ancient history writing, which suggests that the women in particular um, had a big policy role here, that they were manipulating and scheming at the highest level of political decision making. The classic case of that would be Augustus's wife, Livia, who, when Augustus chose his heirs, is reputed to, is supposed to have bumped each heir off with poison as they went until the only man left standing was her own son by her first marriage, the Emperor Tiberius. And that's been a very common theme in talking about particularly the first 
few reigns of the empire. Uh, familiar from Robert Graves's I, Claudius, as well as from other kinds of history writing. And it's not necessarily, not necessarily wrong. But for me, it has all the sniff of absolute traditional misogyny about it. You know, that when we are thinking about why the men in control make the decisions that they do, particularly when they seem odd or when difficult and inconvenient things happen after them, it is extremely easy to say, do you know why it happened like that? It was because of a woman. It's absolutely classic blame the woman Hmm. approach to history writing, which we still see going on. I mean, at the moment in the UK, um, we're having an inquiry about our response to COVID. uh, And last week or so, it's been particularly whether Boris Johnson did or did not get it right. Uh, What comes out there? The person who was really telling him what to do was Carrie Johnson. Hmm, His wife, yeah. Yeah, I have no idea whether Mrs Johnson was influential or not, but I sure know that that's a completely standard, cliched, stereotypical version of what you say about women in power. Yeah, the more things change, the more they stay the same, huh? Yeah, exactly. exactly. And that's why looking at this can be very interesting, because it doesn't give you, I think Roman history doesn't provide simple parallels. I mean, people um, always used to ring me up when President Trump was in power and would say, what Roman Empire emperor is President Trump most like? And in the end, I just used to say Elagabalus, um, not, because, <laughs> not because I thought he was really, actually. I don't think he's half as bad as Elagabalus was written up to be, you know, even Trump. Um, but I thought, oh, well, at least they'll never have heard of Elagabalus, and so they'll have to go and look him up. <laughs> so, um, you know, and I don't think, I just don't think that one-to-one equivalence, you know, ever, ever helps. Mm. But I think what does help is thinking about uh, how you see the way we talk about things replicated with certain differences 2,000 years ago. I think it helps you see what's going on now as well as what's going on then. We are to that point um, in our country and yours, in many, many places around the world, reevaluating our history, our histories, I should say. Um, and I heard that you once said that history is always moving and we're changing the questions and it's changing the answers. Why is it important for us to think about history in these ways? Well, I'm going to quote the excellent Spanish novelist um, Antonio Munoz Molina. I once did an, uh, a discussion with him and we were asked very much that same question. What he said, and I thought absolutely spot on right, he said, look, you could say we can't learn from history, but History is all we've got to learn from. So we've really got to try. And I think that that for me now has become the bottom line. But it doesn't stay the same. You know, the people who are making history are as much us as the people we're studying. Um, we're putting new questions and different questions to them. And they are helping us by that kind of conversation with a version of the past. We are enabled to see different things, both in their world and in our world. And I've thought that very strongly um, about the history of women, for example. I mean, when I when I was a student, um, you know, back in the 1970s, women hardly featured in ancient history. 
Uh, and that's dramatically changed in my lifetime, as we've seen that you couldn't possibly want to understand a, an, any culture without understanding women as well as men. That has changed the way ancient history looks when we teach it and when we read about it. But it's also sensitised us to the ways that we understand our own version of women and power. You know, the idea that we do see still women as the schemers behind the throne, um, that we don't actually have a way very easily of thinking about an independently powerful woman, even though um, you know, countries have had queens and female prime ministers and presidents. Um, there's still a lot of work to be done about imagining women being authoritative and powerful. And for me, and I think for many people, actually seeing the origins of, in a way, the silencing of women in antiquity has been a very useful help to thinking about that. And mm -hmm. history doesn't have the answers, but it can help us think differently about ourselves. After getting inside the head of what it was really like to be a Roman emperor, is this a job you would have wanted? What? <laughs> uh, no. I mean, I think that after <laughs> spending quite a long time working on these guys, I think that I've come to hate the system of one-man rule even more than I did before. But at the same time, I've come to feel just a bit sorry for the individual's concern. You know, you're an ordinary bloke. You're not necessarily that smart. And you've got to think of yourself as the ruler of the known world. You've got to believe in yourself as emperor. You've got to do the job. You've got to act the part. And not very many of them succeed. Job from hell. <laughs> <laughs> and on that, Mary, I want to say thank you very much. We appreciate the work you do, the job you do, um, of just making all of this so fascinating and, and worthy of our, our time and understanding. Appreciate you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's historian Mary Beard, who has a new book out. It is called Emperor of Rome. You're listening to the Sunday Magazine podcast. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Earl Morris has been making films for more than 40 years, documenting the lives and probing the minds of people from residents of small towns to those with their hands on the levers of power. His newest film is about the British writer John Le Carre, who died in 2020. A year before that, Errol spent four days with the best-selling spy novelist, conversing and exchanging notes on topics they both meditated on in their work over the years, storytelling, truth versus fiction, and how we reframe history. And it's resulted in Errol Morris's new film. It's called The Pigeon Tunnel, which turns out is also the name of John Le Carre's memoir. Errol dropped by our studio during the Toronto International Film Festival to chat about his new doc. Here's our conversation. Welcome to Canada. Thank you. Welcome thank back. you. And thank you, Canada. <laughs> <laughs> nice to have you here. I can't imagine sitting down for four days with John Le Carre. So let's talk about your experience doing that. I think most of our listeners know who he was, pen name of David Cornwell, a writer, former intelligence officer of British spy agencies, and a guy who had the most unusual childhood with a conman father and an absent mother. But beyond those sort of factual descriptors, Errol Morris, which are pretty compelling in, in and of themselves, what drew you to him? I liked his writing. I had read a number of his spy novels, 
The Spy Who Came In from the Cold is one of my favorite novels. It's one of my favorite films. Martin Ritt made an extraordinary film with Richard Burton from that novel. We met at his house in Hampstead, and maybe I'm being presumptuous here, but I think we liked each other, and we agreed that it would make sense for us to record a conversation about him and about his work. And I'm truly grateful for this opportunity. He is one of the most eloquent men I have ever talked to, let alone interviewed. Hmm. And I learned an enormous amount. Why make films anyway? What am I doing making films? I make films because <laughs> I think maybe I could learn something. And I learned a lot. Hmm. You said you two were kindred spirits. I think that's a good way to describe it. I think that's true. What do you mean by that? We had many of the same interests. And there's an underlying set of philosophical questions that run through this entire movie. I mean, it's a strange way to begin a movie, but we started talking about interviews and interrogations. Are they different? Are they one and the same? What is the difference between an interrogation and an interview? And David kept saying, I'm going to try to find out who you are, mm. who you really are, which is almost a threat. <laughs> well, that, that's the opening scene, mm. right? Indeed hear, it is. We hear him saying, you need to know something about the ambitions of the people you're talking to. He's talking directly to you. He's saying, hey, Errol Morris, I need to get to know you. Yep. How do you feel about that as a guy who's usually asking the questions? Uh, a little scared. I'm easily intimidated. I tell him in the movie, I'm not sure that I can tell him who I am because I'm not sure I know who I am. In fact, I'm pretty sure I don't know who I am. But what emerges is an interesting discussion on the nature of who we are, the nature of history. And we go through many of his novels and we go through many of his experiences. He was not just a spy writer. He was also a spy. And he has so many interesting observations to make about the nature of spycraft and about the nature of history. I kept thinking, here is a cynical man, but maybe he's not quite as cynical as I am. <laughs> uh, because at the root, he really believed in queen and country. There is a right and wrong in the world. There are things you should do and things you shouldn't do. He tells a story. He was obsessed, for example, with the double agent Kim Philby, who spied uh, for the Russians. And David probably in most of his novels, certainly in many of his novels, thinks about what it means to betray people, what it means to spy, what it means to take on a persona which is really not exactly yours for the purpose of ferreting out information mm. from others. And on that theme of betrayal, Le Carre tells you a story about having 
to betray a friend when he was in the Secret Service. And he says, you know, all these years later, all those years later, he was still horrified by it. But he also said he really had no choice to do it because his friend was a communist on the, quote, wrong side. And then you asked him, can you be so sure you were on the right side? What were you trying to And he says, (laughs) of course not. (laughs) What were you trying to interrogate there? I'm trying to figure out, still I'm trying to figure out how David Cornwell, John le Carré, sees the world. He was given the opportunity when he was in the old Soviet Union, he was in Moscow, to meet Philby, and he refused to do so. Uh, It's one of my favorite lines in the movie. He said, I couldn't see myself as having dinner with the Queen's representative one evening and with the Queen's traitor on another. So there is, at the heart of almost all of his writings, an awareness of right and wrong, of what one should do and what one shouldn't do. Can we go back to something that you said earlier, that you you spent a lot of time, the two of you, drawing parallels and differences between interviews and interrogations. Yep. And so what did you conclude in that? In other words, how do you see them as similar and how are they different? It's something that has made me think a lot. I'm not sure I know some definitive answer to that. I suppose the obvious thing to say is that In interrogations, you have an agenda. You have usually a secret agenda. You're trying to ferret out information. You're trying to get people in some way to confess to something that they have done. Interviews, at least the way I do them, seem far more desultory. Catch as catch can. Mm. No fixed certain agenda but just a desire to make a connection with another person and learn something about them, something you didn't know. But maybe at heart, maybe there isn't that much difference. Maybe I'm the one who's completely deceived about what I do. Wow. Um, But David, and I'm sure if he were alive today, he would agree with this, is in many ways an enigma to himself. Are we all? Maybe so. He certainly talks about writing as a form of self-discovery, of figuring out who he is and what he thinks. And he wrote an awful lot, over 30 novels. So prolific, extraordinarily brilliant. One of my favorite interviews. I'm Hmm. glad I got the opportunity to do it. You, Errol Morris, you have this admirable, rare ability, I think, to cut through people's own delusions, the lies they tell others, the lies they tell themselves. It it, it goes beyond cutting beyond the BS, which, you know, people can do. What is it about you that makes you so equipped to do that? Like, where where does that come from for you? I'm not sure. Uh, I think there's an anarchic element in everything I do, a crazy element, an unrehearsed, unplanned element. I say to David Cornwell at the very beginning of our interview, I usually don't know where to begin. And it's true. How in hell would I know where to begin? I guess you just begin by beginning. And then 
autobiography that he wrote, The Pigeon Tunnel, I had not read it at the very beginning of this project, but it is my favorite of his works. It's not a novel. It's a strange, perverse biography where he seizes on, I suppose you could call it picaresque, episodic, I don't know. He seizes on these details in his life and tells stories. Mm. And the stories are often funny, absurd, and deeply interesting. Do you think, though, and this gets back to talking about you and where, what, where this comes from for you, do you think he would have been able to reveal himself to someone else in the ways that he revealed to you? Because, I, again, I think you have this unique ability to get things out of people, to go places, to make them feel comfortable, no matter whether it's Le Carre or the many, many other subjects you have, people, people you have talked to. Well, it's a nice thing to say. I remember when I was trying to coax Robert S. McNamara, I made a movie with him, The Fog of War, to do an interview, and he told me he would give me five minutes. We ended up talking over many, many, many days, over 21 hours. And he told me at one point that he liked talking to me. I like talking to him. <laughs> so maybe that's it. Like you don't spend any time thinking, huh, why do you want to talk to me? Why do you give me more than that five minutes? <laughs> no, I, uh, I wanted to keep him going. Mm. That movie, of course, that film uh, won the, the Oscar. You have documented so many lives, as I said in my introduction, both like of people others would deem extraordinary and ordinary. What is the common thread in the work you do? Is there one? I don't know. Years and years ago, when I started as a filmmaker, I had horrible trouble raising money. And to earn a living, I became a private detective. Being a private detective is a very odd kind of job. And I worked uh, on the high end of things. I did really big stuff that you would read about in the newspapers. And I loved it. But it did involve pretext. It did involve playing a kind of game where you're not laying your cards on the table. You're pretending often to be someone other than that person who you really are, whoever I really am, mm. pretending to be something else. And yes, I suppose there's a common element in being a spy and being a detective. And being an interviewer in your case. And being an interviewer as well. So if you look at your 2018 film, American Dharma, which was about Steve Bannon, who was, of course, Donald Trump's strategist for, for some time, I think fair to say no matter what anyone thinks about Steve Bannon, a complex character, a complex human being. We're all complex. Is he more complex than anyone else? Maybe. He's more annoying than a lot of other people. You wanted to sit down with him at a time when a lot of people were saying, Errol, just don't do this. Why do you want to talk to him? Because the entire phenomenon of Trump and his advisors was something that interested me. It interested a lot of people. The entire country seemed to have gone, not that that has changed very much, but the entire country seemed to have gone stark raving mad. And it's a question. Why? How? Who are these people? Bannon fascinated me then. He still fascinates me. 
You called the election of Trump in 2016. Uh, I think you said something. It was like the dark, one of the darkest days of your life. Do you still feel that way? Yeah, I wonder why I didn't put it in even starker, darker terms. I mean, we live at a time where everything seems up for grabs. The whole world seems nuts. And I would be lying if I didn't tell you that I find these times frightening. Hmm. Me too. But how so? When you say, I find them frightening, what are you frightened by? I'm a great believer in truth. David Cornwell and I have a discussion about truth. It's become very fashionable to think that truth is up for grabs, it's subjective. Like your, your truth tr is truth? Yeah, yeah, your truth, someone else's truth, um, everybody has their own truth. Hip, hip, hooray. Um, I don't quite believe in any of that. I believe there is one truth. We may not have access to it. We may not be able to hold it in our hands. It may be a quest. But there's a fact of the matter out there. And what's scary about our modern world, it's so horribly divided, horribly polarized, that no one agrees on anything. Mm. Facts are up for grabs, too. Facts are up for grabs. Seemingly, ultimately, you know, there's a fact about who won that election. You can argue about it, but there is a fact about it. You mentioned that you and Dave Cornwell, Le Carre, talked a lot about history. And I, and I think this connects to what you're just saying there about truth. He says of history that it's chaos, if I remember it. Well, what is your sense of what he meant by that? And what is your sense of history, especially as you say at this time where everything seems up for grabs? And well, I, you didn't say this, but I might suggest like almost directionless. I'm the guilty party in the sense that I'm the one who says history is chaos and David agrees. It's fashionable, certainly fashionable nowadays to say that there are all of these conspiracies out there, um, that history is about people with strings, pulling strings, uh, conspiring to do this or conspiring to do that. And... I don't see history as orderly in that way. I don't see it as repetitive. I don't see it as rhyming. Uh, I don't see it as having any kind of rhyme or reason. From everything I know about people, people are horribly at cross purposes with each other. And there's a lot of people acting in crazy, strange ways. And... History is the byproduct of all of and that. And does it not then that chaos give you some comfort in this unsettling moment that we find, our, find ourselves in? No. No. Why would it give me comfort? Maybe we're all completely crazy. You, um, in the film, also call Le Carre, what do you call him, a, a poet of self-loathing, I think it is? Something like that, so, yes. Something like that. Self-hatred, self-loathing. Exquisite poet. Exquisite poet of self-loathing, I think. Is that... Something you, Errol Morris, also identify. Like, could you, like, if I, I know you're not wanting. You to betcha. Yeah. <laughs> Very much so. Yeah. What are you, what are you self-loathing about? Probably everything. Um, being happy and satisfied with oneself seems to be unnecessary. 
and maybe impossible. You're a work in progress. I guess so. Yeah. Thank you for um, coming in. I know you've got a busy schedule. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. That's the wonderful documentary filmmaker Errol Morris, who I got a chance to speak with when he was in town for the Toronto International Film Festival. His news documentary about uh, spy novelist John Le Carre is called The Pigeon Tunnel. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay, and you're listening to the Sunday Magazine podcast. So with Halloween just a couple of days away, perhaps you have been reading some horror books or telling horror stories lately. Well, there's a new anthology of short stories out that focuses on Indigenous horror tales. It is called Never Whistle at Night, named after the belief in some cultures that the act can summon ghosts of ancient warriors or attract bad spirits. Here's the collection's editor and one of its contributors reflecting on the utility of the horror genre for Indigenous people. I was inspired by dark fiction or horror, um, mostly because I grew up with horror movies thanks to my dad. <laughs> he, he had me watch movies that I probably shouldn't have at different ages. I'm Shane Hawk. I'm enrolled in the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes of Oklahoma. I'm also of Hadatsa and Potawatomi descent. During the day, I'm a history teacher, and at night, I write horror. Uh, I wasn't much of a reader as a kid, you know, just here and there. Um, and I found a real love for it when I went back to college at 26. And in the summer of 2019, I read a novella by Stephen Graham Jones, uh, Mapping the Interior, and it blew my mind. Just the, the short form, how he was indigenous, you know, and I thought, hey, maybe I could take a stab at this. And so he was truly the reason why I really got deep into um, horror, specifically trying to grow this kind of subgenre of indigenous horror. So with Never Whistle at Night, we really wanted a, a title that's striking, that is reminiscent of VHS horror, you know, cautionary tales, you know, Never Whistle at Night. And so it was due to so many indigenous peoples across the world that have a shared belief that you should not whistle at night or don't whistle in the woods, things like that. And the consequence is always different across cultures. But we wanted to have just a striking title um, that really stood out on the shelf and really lends itself to the horror genre. We Indigenous people, we've been storytellers for thousands of years. You know, we're naturals. <laughs> Specifically in the horror realm, we've lived through horrors. Our ancestors have lived through real-life horrors. And so we kind of have this dark cloud over us, and we're persevering, we're resilient, we're getting through it. Um, and I want to make it clear that as Indigenous writers, you know, we don't always have to educate the audience or include folklore. There's this kind of assumption through most, mostly Western audiences that once you delve into an indigenous piece, you know, something written by an indigenous person, that, oh, there has to be some lesson in it from their culture. There has to be, you know, something that's really deep and, you know, stoic and amazing. And it's just kind of funny. We just kind of want to put that message out there that we're not monolithic. Uh, we're not here to preach. We're not here to kind of lecture. But through our stories, you can take a really interesting and dark a serious deep look into our kind of shared histories, overlapping histories. There's a specific piece in Never Whistle at Night that I think early reviews from non-Indigenous people, 
they might be kind of taken aback by it because it's a little bit of an angry piece by Brandon Hobson. And rightfully so. He's basically framing it from these indigenous peoples that have been, you know, tormented, killed, all sorts of things in the past. And it's really speaking directly to the people that harmed them and it's a revenge story. And it is very direct, very blunt, uh, very matter of fact. And, you know, if, uh, if you're a non-Indigenous person going into this book, um, that story might maybe upset you, maybe um, run you through some ancestral guilt, uh, things like that. Um, but we thought it was an important piece to include because it was just so kind of shocking, so bold, and we loved it. receive Wab's story limbs I read it right away because man I love his writing but it was immediately it either had to start the collection or end the collection and you know we settled with you know it's a strong strong ender uh, it speaks to so many things um, so many First Nations people's experiences and uh, it's just an amazing story it, it was honestly kind of hard coming up with an idea for this because I have never really written anything straight up horrific. My name is Wabagijik Rice. I'm an author originally from Wasoxing First Nation and I now live in Sudbury, Ontario. I spent a lot of time thinking about what the particular idea was going to be and I had some other ideas that were I think more speculative in nature but I thought you know going more straight up with horror and exploring a very specific experience and relationship that's obviously an allegory for so many things related to colonialism um was the right way to go for me and uh, uh so that's where limbs came came about and and i sort of wanted to set it in a more historical setting of this nishinaabe guide helping a settler through the land, a prospector looking for resources and then sort of illustrate that uh, exploitative relationship that settlers and indigenous people uh, have had, you know, on the settler side, of course. And I wanted to show how colonialism really impacts the body, you know, and in some ways what happens to him is representative of, of disease, you know, diabetes um, and, and all the other sort of negative health outcomes that have resulted from being displaced, being colonized, and so on. It's difficult. It's intense, absolutely. But I think the payoff, without giving too much away about the story, is, is liberating um, because you have, I think, the sovereignty as a storyteller to determine a new future or uh, a more triumphant outcome for Indigenous characters in the wake of being brutalized by people or the state or whatever else, right? So it's it's a matter of like really going dark and, and digging deep into some of that despair and, and negativity in hopes of liberating yourself on the other side right not just as the writer but hopefully for the reader at the same time uh and with 
more broadly our our stories um, from an Ishnabi perspective uh, we have like Wendigo stories or stories of other monsters uh, and and those stories are meant to inform us and and I think make us aware of the dangers out in the world and I remember being a little kid and hearing Wendigo stories and being really scared right <laughs> and part of that too is the entertainment value of horror you know uh, I can send a really really good message and when you're a little kid and you hear about a potential cannibal that could inflict horror upon your community even though you know in the back of your head it's not real it's just like something that can really unsettle you but in a good way right it just makes you more aware i see the future of indigenous horror as only growing you know this is just the tip of the iceberg and we really want to reach more indigenous potential writers and i see this genre definitely expanding and we really want to push for a second volume to, you know, have another open call and have all that excitement behind, you know, submitting stories and, and influencing and inspiring, you know, even younger uh, Indigenous folks to, you know, take a stab at writing, hopefully in the dark genre, because we, we want to have some fun here. But, you know, it's just really important to us that this genre keeps growing and I think it will. Shane Hawk is a horror writer and the editor of the dark fiction anthology Never Whistle at Night. You also heard there from one of the contributors to this collection, Wabgishik Rice. And with that, we've come to the end of another round of the Sunday Magazine podcast. Our producers are Sarah Joyce Battersby, Tracy Fuller, Levi Garber, Brianna Goes, Andrea Huang, Pete Minton, and Aronde Williams. Our senior producer is Danielle Grogan. Our executive producers are Brian Colton and Donna Dingwall. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Thank you for lending us your ear here on the Sunday Magazine podcast. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.